Lit Service is brought to you by Writer's Clearinghouse. Writer's Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. Now here's the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and when I was little, I thought coupons meant you could get anything you wanted for free. <laughs> but my perspective changed. That's probably good. Um, I'm Cameron, and you know, as a kid, I thought running was the, like like something like you would choose to run. I thought that was the stupidest thing ever. Like, why would you choose to spend your time running? And now I go insane if I don't do it. So, you know, that changed. I'm Kristen, and when I was little, I thought that hangnails were the same thing as hangovers. And so when my friends, <laughs> when my friends would be like, "Man, I have the worst hangnail," I was always like, "We're nine. How is that possible?" <laughs> oh, awesome! My perspective has changed. <laughs> my name is Caitlin, and when I was little. I thought that the darkness in my closet meant that there were scary things in my closet and couldn't sleep. And actually, my perspective has not changed. So. Oh, <laughs> twist and feel the same way. <laughs> I feel like I've transferred this fear to my daughter who comes into my room every night and says, there are shadows in my closet. And I'm like, oh. well, I could be the shadows in your closet. <laughs> Keep you in bed. <laughs> That's freaky, Caitlin. <laughs> Just kidding. Halloween was last week. It's Halloween every week in this house. <clears throat> Caitlin's perspective on parenting. We expected to have Ben on, but he was injured in a freak walrus accident, and <laughs> we all wish him the most speedy of non-walrus-related recoveries. Today we're discussing how to manage um, point of view when there are multiple narrators. How to use your point of view strategically. So what effect does point of view have on a plot? Does it even matter at all? Well, I mean, I think the information that the reader gets is significantly different based on what POV you're in. So especially if you have multiple points of view, um, like if you're in first person, then that's a really limited point of view. So it's really easy to keep secrets from other characters, or it's really, really easy to be immersed in the voice and in the world. So... Yeah, especially with first person. You're getting everything specifically from that person's point of view and you're experiencing it as they experience it, especially if it's first person present. Even first person um, past feels like that. It's a much more immersive experience, and so you get more attached to POVs, I think, that way too. Then you kind of get like the opposite end of the spectrum, where if you're an omniscient and you have a narrator who knows everything, it's much, much harder. To, you, it's not impossible, but it's much harder to keep secrets from your readers and not feel like you're cheating. If the person who's talking to us knows the answers, why isn't that? Why aren't they saying them? It's like, what, mm -hmm. what's up? Which I think is is why you have to be strategic about choosing your point of view. You should choose it specifically with with an eye to the kind of story you're telling. Like if you have a big twist ending and it's omniscient then your narrator or the omniscient POV or whatever, I guess it doesn't even have to be a POV, POV itself, had better have a really good reason for keeping information back. Whereas, 
I think that first and third limited um, are really, really fun because you can keep secrets from some characters and not from others. So the reader has more information than the characters do, which is a really great tension builder. Mm. And speaking of tension builders, having multiple POVs, multiple points of view, that each have those own, their own problems um, can increase the tension even more. Each point of view should have something exciting about it, something driving its narrative and... Um, each point of view should add something. So ideally, if you have multiple POVs, every single one of them has driving motivations that are going to come into conflict with things. And I think kind of ideally, you, I think it's fun when, PO, when your POVs have um, conflicts with each other. Um, so it's just kind of like a giant conflict bonanza that you can have. <laughs> when you're when you're doing that and you can and what that allows you to do if you only have one versus only having one is that you can you can build more empathy and understand more where multiple people are coming Absolutely. from and more people means more problems so that's a win more people more problems i'm pretty sure that's not how that saying goes but so when you do have multiple narrators multiple points of view which perspective should you choose um pros and cons of different ones what do we think do we do want to define define real quick what we mean like like at what for for what are you choosing a POV? I think we mean like are we talking about like like for a chapter for, for a given, given scene? scene? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good definition. Yeah. So Caitlin earlier when we were talking mentioned that she thinks it should probably be the character that's most proactive in a scene. And as soon as we started talking about that, we immediately dismantled <laughs> that as the as the reason. Um, but I think that is a reason to choose a point of view character. If if the character is going to be the one who has the most to do with a scene and the most to do in a scene, a scene can work really well if they're the one narrating it. Because proactivity is usually a really good way to measure who's most important in a scene. But I think in a larger meta-narrative context, it can be more important to look at who the scene is most important to. Mm. And one that's immediately jumping to mind is, this is going to be spoilers for, when do we learn this? Is this at the end of Way of Kings or Words of Radiance? Anyway, it's Anderson book. Um, we finally learned why Kaladin was made a slave in the first place. We have a flashback scene. We have a flashback scene where he 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 has no proactivity in the scene. He's just being held while his men are being slaughtered and he's branded and it's awful. But it it only could have worked from Kaladin's perspective. It's true. Well, and also I'm I'm writing a book right now that has four points of view. And I'm finding that the most emotional, like, backstory that's being expounded, I'm always having someone else watch someone else tell their own story. So even if it's a more emotional story for the person who's telling the story, I feel like it's more um, effective for someone else to be listening to it, if that makes sense. So I don't know if that goes with proactivity, but it's more important for the people who are listening to, like, react to what's happening rather than and to, like, see and have, like, like I was saying before, sometimes the reader has more information than the character whose point of view you're in. And so for some of those scenes, it's way more interesting to see it from the outside of the character because you can see reactions and stuff that you have context for, but that the character who's watching doesn't. That dramatic irony is something that I think um, really drives reader engagement in a book. Um, I'm thinking of the Seven Realms books by Cinder Williams China. The first one, The Demon King, it's narrated by Han and Reza, and they don't meet until really, really far in there. But we, the readers have 
uh, enough of an idea of the situation to know what's going on in Han's life and what's going on in Reza's life. And so when they finally meet and these two clash in ways that only complicate lives for each other, um, there's just a really great sense of fun and interest and tension for the reader because we know what Han doesn't know, which is that the person he's kidnapping is actually a princess. And we know what Reza doesn't know, which is that the person who's kidnapping her is actually a street lord and he's doing it for good reasons. And um, it just makes for a really, really interesting reading. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go ahead and pull, I'm going to pull another, I'm on a, I'm on a Way of Kings uh, train tonight. I'm going to pull another example from there where I think another, another one can be that when you're choosing whose perspective to do a scene from, that it can be one that makes sure the scene maintains tension um the the example that that's springing to mind is sanderson is a very uh risky and i think interesting thing at the beginning of weighing kings where we have an entire perspective block chapter um of of a character who dies at the end of that chapter but i think it was necessary to do it that way because it's through this lens that we're introduced to kaladin who we were talking about earlier because at this point in kaladin's story he's kind of a flawless character he he the only problems he has are that he can't he is that he can't quite take care of the people around as much as he want wants but he's a super confident military commander he's a super confident uh competent surgeon he's just super good at all the things that scene from his perspective would have been bad because he's just this hyper competent guy who has no problems we don't actually shift his perspective until after his breaking moment when everything goes downhill and all of a sudden he has problems out the wazoo. For me, when I critique work and I have problems with the point of view, most often it's because the author is going with the point of view that they think they should be going with, either the main characters or the person who is being most active instead of the person for whom the scene makes most sense, the person whose eyes make it more interesting or... Um, who is experiencing that emotion that then the reader can experience. An example of the character who I wouldn't have expected a scene to be from, but that made it interesting is in the Raven King spoiler alert. I will try not to be too spoilery, but spoilery here, but at the end of it, there's something really horrible happening to one of the main cast. And um, as the audience, we don't see it because a point of view character is somebody who's blindfolded. um, And at the moment he can't see any of it. So all we see is the other character, we can only hear the other characters reacting to what's going on and have no idea exactly what's happening. We, we don't get any visual on it at all. Um, but because of the emotional connection between the blindfolded character and the character bad things are happening to, it's really, really tense. And it, it makes that scene, it makes it speed up, but it also makes it kind of slow down where you get those knots in your stomach because you're so worried about what's going to happen. And so I think Aaliyah is probably onto something there with the, the character that it, it affects. And so this is maybe like another overarching way to look at this subject is that you're, you're looking at, as a storyteller, you're looking at what information and emotional uh, information do you want this scene to convey? And then you can pick the perspective to deliver that stuff. Mm, so more, more handpicking and less... Um picking the point of view by rote. I like that a lot. Agreed. Um, Something else that the point of view character can do for you is um, you can use a point of view character who's not exactly familiar with a new situation to be the way to introduce a reader to the situation. Um, 
in Clockwork Angel, this works really well, where Tessa has nothing to do with the Shadowhunters and she's totally new to this world. And um, because she's new, the readers kind of get like a Watsony character to explain what's going on for her, which I think is an important thing to do, um, especially if your world would have a really high learning curve. It can be really helpful to have somebody who is unexperienced or brand new to a setting or to a culture and use them as kind of an audience. It's explainer. it's one of the reasons why in like, especially like fantasy middle grade, it's like a really popular trope to like have the, the uh, like the through the wardrobe experience because you have someone who comes from our world, which means it's really easy to understand what they know. But then from their perspective, the through the wardrobe world is completely new so it's totally natural to have um, other characters explain stuff to them whereas if you were focusing on we'll do narnia if we if we did a scene from tumnus's perspective it would be really odd if the beavers started explaining things that tumnus already knew that's how you get into maiden butler dialogue where it's obvious that the the author is giving information to the reader it's like the the fish describing what it feels like to be wet like the fish doesn't notice it because it lives in the water. And so, yeah, it's it's a really good technique for allowing um, your characters to explain their world to the reader really directly. So now that we've established that having multiple POVs can be really useful, what are some tips for juggling points of view responsibly? I'll jump in with, I think the most important thing when you have, especially as the number of POVs in a book, you know increases and keeps going up is that ideally you should be able to pick up a book open to a random place read a couple of paragraphs and even if there aren't any names in it know whose perspective that is from there should be enough markers on how they view the world on how they speak on what's important to them that their voices are distinctive enough that you can know who this whose perspective this is from i think most books probably fall short of that perfect ideal, but it gives you an idea of of something, you know, a, a goal that will really make make help you keep your focus on perspectives that are efficient, effective, and doing what you want them to. Someone else say something. <laughs> yeah, if, if you've ever had the experience where you're reading a book and you're like, I don't remember whose point of view I'm in, and you have to flip back to the beginning of the chapter to like see the name, that happens all the time to me in first person juggling perspectives books which is the the problem that Cameron is talking about so if you have a bunch of first person POVs you have to be a very skilled writer in order to be able to make their voices distinct enough so that people don't have to do that they don't have to go back to the beginning of the chapter and say oh this is from the guy's perspective okay yeah you know Agreed. Just having, mm -hmm. just simply having a large number of characters who tell the story doesn't automatically make their voices distinctive. They each have to be as fully fleshed out as the main character if you want to take that, that route. And um, perspective shifting should always accentuate the story and not get in the way of it. It shouldn't frustrate readers when suddenly they have to jump to a totally different head. They should enjoy head jumping. <laughs> So this is a rule that is like made to be broken. But if you have a huge ensemble cast, well, actually, this isn't even true. You have to be consistent in the way that you <laughs> present your different POVs. If you are consistently giving characters each a chapter and you're switching between them and then in the middle of the book, you're like, actually, here's just this character for like 10 chapters. That's really frustrating for readers. So, I mean, 
I mean, this rule is definitely broken. Like, if you've ever read A Discovery of Witches, which is an adult vampire fantasy. I forget who it's by. I probably should look that up. Anyway, okay, so A Discovery of Witches is mostly from one person's perspective, but there are a couple of random um, sections of the book that are from the vampire's perspective, this vampire guy who's, like, protecting the main character because she's a witch, and I'm not going to tell you about the story because if you want to read it, you can. But, um... It's it's random, and I think it's even in a different tense. So it's really distinctively not from her, and it seems really random when it's inserted into the book. So consistency, I didn't care for that particular aspect of the book. But, I mean, a lot of people really like those books, so obviously it wasn't a, a, a huge problem for anybody. So you can depart from, like, conventions like that. And actually, Six of Crows does that, too. Her... um at the very beginning of the book, it's from a, the perspective of a character that never comes back into the book. I mean, we see him briefly from the perspective of one of the main POVs later, and it's kind of heartbreaking and sad because bad stuff happens to him in the first chapter. Sorry, spoilers, guys. But, um... Poor Juiced. All he wanted was the moon in his mind. I know, right? So, anyway, you can do interesting things with POVs, so just listen to your beta readers and your writing groups to see if it's working is what I think you generally need to do. I mentioned this earlier. I like to increase tension by switching POVs. Like if you're writing a really fast paced book, then there's a lot of really, really good justifications for cliffhangers, which if you're writing <laughs> like a thriller paced book in which every chapter should probably end on a cliffhanger. So your reader is like, I have to read the next chapter. And I don't mean cliffhangers. Like, I mean, they can be little cliffhangers too. They just have to propel your reader forward. A, a POV switching book is perfect for that. Does anyone have any final comments before we wrap up this section of the podcast? I would just say um, one thing to really make sure of is that whatever promises you make with your various points of view, that you keep them. Because one thing that I see a lot in the manuscripts that are submitted to us and to the agent I worked for is that for beginning writers, a lot of times they would have one character be the point of view for one or two chapters and make it seem like that person was the main character and then do this like bait and switch where it was like, surprise, you thought oh, this book was about this one thing. It's not actually about that thing. And while that can be done well, it can't be done as well as often as people think that it can. So just make sure that you know what promises you're making and then follow through on them. Absolutely. There are like exceptions to that rule. Like one of the biggest rules that agents will tell you is don't kill off the character in the first chapter. Like if you're going to have readers start investing in your character, you don't want to kill them off at the beginning of that chapter because then they won't want to keep reading. There are books that totally break that rule though. Like spoiler alert. Sorry guys. There's someone inside your house. Yeah. The first chapter she doesn't make it. I'm sorry. There are a bunch of different... That that book actually makes promises, though, because that book is filled with the um, the perspectives of victims, actually. So, like, every time it goes to some new random person, you're like, she's going to die. So it makes promises in a really good way that would not work for any other kind of book than a slasher, which is what that book is. That's awesome. All right. So there you have it, folks. Everything you ever need to know about point of views. Don't juggle multiple POVs and drive. Now we get to move on to the next portion of our podcast where we critique a first chapter submission from the audience. So quick review, we try to be non-prescriptive. 
But if you'd like to check out the text of the submission and see all our notes, check on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. A quick summary. In this chapter, we have M, a spaceship mechanic, and she realizes she has to flee the planet when Albion, a giant corporation, offers her a job and won't take no for an answer. What are some things we liked? I like the first line. I'm lying on my back, buried elbows deep in wires. I added an S on elbows. Elbow deep in wires when Artemis yells in my name. I can't read, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm lying on my back, buried elbow deep in wires when Artemis yells my name again. It immediately gives a sense of like voicey annoyance that continues throughout the rest of the chapter, which I really like. I like really like the punctuate the single sent the single word sentence punctuated again, just thrown on thrown on at the end. It's one word and it just builds it builds a lot of character promises and stuff. It's just great. There were actually some some really nice other moments like that that um, characterized M really fast. At one point, she talks about how she wears a child's sides and coveralls, and she expresses frustration over that. I like that. Mm-hmm. There's a really funny line about uh, her insulting one of her coworkers and saying that if she didn't know him, I'd think his work goggles would make him look like a bug, and that's just the way that he is. I thought that was funny, too. I noted that as well. So something I really like about this chapter is that when M is called in by her boss, she walks across this mechanic floor with all these spaceships and she can name them. Like she gives them all of these cool names and it gives us um, a really good idea of her competence level. And it also gives us some really great world building stuff. So we know that we're in like a spacey age and that she's a mechanic and that she's working in this kind of gritty, yucky place. But spaceships with cool names and she's better mechanic than everybody else so it did really good double duty using your using details in a first chapter to do more than one thing it's one of those things that's so obvious you don't really notice it when you're reading good writing but a lot of new writers struggle with quickly establishing genre and place and time and just with this first early bit we know it's science fiction we know there's spaceships um and it's just you know it's just a great you know it's just a great place to start just for that reason because we have this natural oh look spaceships this is science fiction we know what we're dealing with i also wanted to say that the end of the chapter has a great like not cliffhanger but we we have really good established goals and stakes by the end of the chapter we know that if m does not escape from this planet that she lives on then she's going to get like kidnapped by albion And so she's like, okay, I have three days to get off of this planet. So we know exactly what's going to come next in the book. It sets up this really great promise for the rest of what's going to happen. I like the way that she is kind of a brat to the officer when he comes in. Like she talks about how she doesn't care what her hands are like when she's working. And then she sees this guy who it's pretty clear he does care what his hands are like when he's working. And she just like goes in for the handshake and i think it tells us a lot about her and about him i really like how her general response to stress is snark it's just it's just entertaining to to watch i also really liked how well the stakes were laid out especially in in the end of chapter i think it gives us a good sense of where not only where she's come from but where the rest of the story is going to go to like caitlin said what are some things that might need a second look 
So I think the biggest thing that I had in this chapter is that I am not really sure what threat level we're at. So M is vaguely annoyed when she first goes into her boss's office and finds this Albion dude sitting there. She is worried, but then she's like, like she gets really worried when she first sees the Albion uniform, but then she's sort of annoyed. And then she starts looking for a window to climb out of. And then she's just sort of annoyed again. Like she stops to shake the guy's hand to get oil all over him. And so I'm not really worried how, I'm not sure how worried she is for her own like skin. I'm not sure if she thinks she's going to die or if she just thinks she's going to get a slap on the wrist for something that we don't know about until the end of the submission where she's like, these guys kidnap people and I am at risk. So I, I feel like if that were the case, if that threat level was that high, then M, who seems like a really resourceful person, maybe wouldn't have walked into the office at all. At least I wouldn't have. I would have been a... Like, it seems like Albion has so much power that he probably could have just slapped handcuffs on her and walked her off right there. So I guess I wasn't, I didn't feel consistently sure how worried she was about this guy showing up at her workplace and saying, I have a job for you, and if you don't take it, I'm going to take you. Yeah, I, I agree. By the end by the end of the submission, the stakes are super, super clear. But during the the quote-unquote job interview, it's a little murky. And then And then when the stakes do become really clear, the question that popped into my head is, well, okay, hold on. If this is the second time they've reached out to her and she knew previously that they're disappearing people, why did she hang around long enough to be contacted a second time? I'll third that and I'll also say, so I got mixed messages about her fear and I also got mixed messages about her relationship with her boss. At first, her boss seems to be characterized as strict and kind of stiff, but then M goes in and sasses her and I was just a little unclear of the hierarchy and where M fell in that. I also think sense of place might be a thing that needs a second look. So we, we get some pretty clear visuals that help with genre, but there's a lot of visuals that are missing that make me wonder, like, how is this hangar slash uh, shipyard different than any other sci-fi hangar slash shipyard? So working on the triangle of abstraction here, getting it more and more narrow could be helpful. Do you want to explain what the triangle of abstraction is? Absolutely. It's the pyramid of abstraction if oh, you really want to Sorry. be. Yeah. It makes more sense to be a triangle to me. It's not in three dimensions, but it's fine. <laughs> Basically, the idea is that if you use a noun like dog, everyone is going to be thinking of a different dog. There is no quintessential dog. And so you need more and more specific words to get everyone thinking of the type of dog that you want them thinking of. And so with this hangar, there are words that make everyone think of spaceships, but nobody's spaceship idea is the same as anybody else's so to get to a really specific thing use more and more specific language that carries bigger punch and ends up with a better reader experience all around honestly i felt like it was really close if it wasn't there because i felt like the thing that was most important to me was knowing that m knew what was going on in there and she had like these specific super cool names for all the spaceships so i was like space opera here we come and so it didn't matter to me so much that <laughs> It didn't matter Space to me. Opera is so always much. exciting. <laughs> it, it didn't matter to me so much that I didn't necessarily know what all the spaceships looked like. I suppose I didn't know what class of space, like port place, it was. Like, are we thinking grungy, awful planes that are all falling exactly. apart, or are we talking about like high tech stuff? I wasn't really sure. Well, I mean, but... we know that we know that M opens up you know, up to her shoulders in grease or whatever. So I feel like that signals pretty clearly that this isn't a chrome spaceport. Sure. She's getting her hands and everything else really dirty. 
But who knows, maybe spaceships in the future are going to just be really dirty. I don't know. It seems like people try to keep They're those things really clean. They're going to be chrome and greasy. I guess That's so. weird. I All right. Well, that about wraps up our time for tonight. Thanks so much to this author for submitting. We enjoyed reading your work. Our next guest will be Tony Daniel, senior editor at Bain Books. If you'd like to receive a first chapter critique from Tony and us, be sure to check out our submission guidelines on our website and get your chapter to us by November 14th. And as always, a huge thank you to our intern, Sarah Doyle, who has made us the people we are today. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on Twitter at LitService or on Facebook and Instagram as at Litservice Podcast. We frequently do challenges where you can win books or first chapter critiques, or you can email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Lit Service is brought to you by Writer's Clearinghouse. Writer's Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writerch.com. Listeners of the Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.